welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another podcast. This is actually a continuation of one that I put, uh, Podcast 17. Uh, I was actually in the middle of answering a lot of your guys' questions. I made a little Facebook post here, what you guys wanted to hear about. There's uh, several great topics just pouring in, so I'm doing my best to keep up with them. I got a little bit... uh, a little bit too much time on the last one. I had to cut it off, so I'm going to pick up right where I left off. And uh, my next question here is uh, actually from a from a, a great friend on Facebook, um, Tom. Take no prisoners, Collins. Uh, thanks for everything that you're doing for archery, Tom. I sure appreciate it. Uh, definitely try to keep my eyes out there watching everybody who's supporting archery, uh, spreading the word, and loving the sport. And uh, Tom, you're definitely one of those guys, but you're asking the question, do I need to move my anchor in order to have the string on my nose or is my draw too long? And then he kind of continued to say, when I'm anchored, the string is just beside my nose. And for sure, I prefer to have the string at the very tip of the nose. I like string pressure to be very light. I want you to have an anchor point that's consistent and repeatable. But I also, once you actually get your anchor, I want you to turn your face towards the string to where that pressure is barely enough to feel that string on the corner of your mouth and then also the very tip of your nose. Getting the string down the side of your nose or having the string come much past much further than the corner of your mouth um, can potentially run you into some clearance problems which you know is then going to translate into lefts and rights on the group and you're going to find as you shoot longer yardages which I've seen on your posts here lately you've been getting out and starting to experiment in some of that Um, and you're also starting to shoot some field ranges Um, all those things are going to start to show you small flaws in your form in relation to facial pressure and clearance with the string so there's a great article called anchor up on the dudleyarchery.info articles tab you click on the articles tab or you can go to knockontv.com, click on the Articles tab, um, and then look for the one called Anchor Up. That shows you actual anchor position and also uh, release position in your hand because that's important as well. Um, it's hard for me to describe to everybody you know, exactly where you should anchor. Um, I guess that's one of the benefits of when I put on seminars uh, for you to come to those because it gives you a visual. You're not just hearing a voice. Um, I'm able to actually show you what I mean. You know, you're here. You need to be here. Um, That Anchor Up article is a good one, though, to be able to show you some pictures of what I'm talking about. Typically, if you have an anchor position that's super comfortable, but that string is coming back along the side of your nose or past the side of your mouth, and if you like your anchor position, you feel that that's really comfortable, then what I would recommend you doing is shorten your draw length 
but then increase your loop length so that you can maintain your anchor position but reduce the amount of string that's on your face. That's a great thing about loops and that's really the importance of why they were around to begin with was being able to modify your draw length and your anchor position without always having to do that with the bow itself. So utilize your loop. It's a great way to make those fine adjustments. Um, then the next question here, let's see, there's a, I'm just going to go with Justin Hamilton uh, is asking the question, is Camline an issue with today's shorter to axle, axle length bows? Um, honestly, Camline, um, it's, it's one of those questions where there's definitely times where Camline is important. Um, there's definitely times where it's excessive. Um, you know, you, you ultimately want to have a cam that's, you know, more vertical. That's why, you know, and you want to be able to have some control on that. Um, you know, I, I prefer my cams to, to be vertical. Um, I typically like with, um, I, that's another reason why I really like a split yoke, uh, harness on my cables so that I can actually twist up each side of the yoke to actually adjust that cam lean to where I want it. But with a lot of bows that have, um, you know, a wheel on the bottom where you don't have a yoke on the outside of the axle to where you can adjust that, you know, you're kind of at the mercy of, I guess, the the build of the limb, um, the design of the cam, and then also the position of the cam, uh, how it's actually engineered in that limb itself as a system. Because, you know, depending on that and depending on how much pressure you have pulling your cables um, off to the side of your string, you know, to come over to a roller guard or to come over to a cable slide, you know, the more you pull off to the side, the more, you know, you're going to actually start causing some cam lean um, as a result. So a shorter axle-to-axle bow, that pull to the side that I was just talking about, it's going to be a little bit more noticeable just because obviously, you know, if you have a bow that's only 30 inches tall and you have to pull those cables two inches off to the side for clearance, you know, you obviously have a a sharper angle going down to your cams. Whereas if you have a 40 inch bow and you're pulling over, you know, it just seems like that's a, a lighter angle going towards that cam uh, and it just doesn't seem to have as much twist. Um, on some bows, like with my Hoyts, you know, I have the option of being able to flip my limbs around, um, also being able to switch, um, you know, my my washers on the bottom cam. I can, you know, put the thicker one on one side or the thinner one on the other side. Sometimes I flip the limbs around, and you can usually find a combination to where you have, you know, a perfectly aligned 
uh, wheel. And I, I prefer to have them that way. Um, you know, when you're paper tuning, if you ever have a bow that like really paper tunes left or right, um, you know, sometimes as a last resort, if you're not able to get that tear to change, you know, you should look at your actual cam position. Um, I know that, you know, like on a cam and a half system, you can, um, have some adjustment to your actual, um, tear through paper in your arrow flight by adjusting that position of your top cam. I prefer to have my cam level or vertical at a full draw position. Um, I did the same thing when I shot um, single cam bows. You know, I always like to adjust my yoke so that my idler wheel was straight up and down when I was at full draw. So I hope that helps you out uh, a little bit on that. Uh, the next question is uh, from Matt Malik. He's asking the question, what's the best way to ensure proper form when we're getting kids involved in the sport of archery? And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a great question. I actually want to have um, a great ambassador to archery on the show here um, sometime soon. I want to get Rob from Lancaster Archery on here because Rob does a lot with archery here in the States um, and he's seen a lot of archers through his store and he's worked a ton with the kids events at the ASAs Um, and you know when it comes to kids and I believe women as well you know the importance of really getting them in and getting them set up right are going to be a few factors first off is actually buying them equipment that is suited for their size. Um, you know, just just yesterday I got, well, I guess it'd be yesterday from whenever you're listening to this, um, I got a package of some of the new Easton Kids Recurves, uh, the Recurve package sets. Um, I know that like Fuse is making some, Hoyt's making some. Obviously, there's the Matthews Genesis bow out there. Um, these bows are are critical to our industry because they're actually allowing youth to have equipment that is built for them and also for women now. There's a lot of bows designed specifically for all the ladies out there. And I think this is what promotes longevity in the sport. Because I know that if I went to go golfing when I was seven years old or eight years old, my dad made me golf with his clubs. Well, you know, there's obviously something that's not going to work out there. Um, You know, same went for my bow. Uh, Honestly, when I first started in archery, I couldn't hit nothing. Um, I remember back in the days, uh, you know, I actually started archery. My very first archery club was Fox Valley Archers in Illinois. There might be a lot of you listening that don't know that, some of you guys from Illinois. But, yeah, that's where I started. And, uh, you know, I remember going out there and, uh, you know, the only arrows I had to shoot were the arrows that my were leftovers from my dad. And, you know, I actually wanted to shoot good more than my dad did but I had all the equipment that was kind of the misfits or you know every now and then we'd rummage through the lost and found in the archery club and dig some new arrows out for John and you know there's no surprise that I wasn't as good as most of the people that we shot with because 
I was literally shooting a, a royal buffet of arrows all the time. Not to mention I was probably shooting. I don't have any pictures of me shooting then. I'm almost certain the bow. I know the bow was too big because I know what bow it was. Too big, too heavy, and the draw length I'm sure was way too long. Um, I know that I shot a, a really junky plastic release that my dad had bought for himself and figured out it stunk, so he gave it to me. And, uh, you know, I ended up putting archery down for several years, and, you know, I focused on playing football. Uh, you know, and then, you know, eventually when I got old enough to to be able to spend some money of my own on equipment that was suited for me, then I started to enjoy it again. So that's what's critical when it comes to getting kids involved is getting them set up with something that's made for their size and letting them shoot a draw weight that they can control for an extended period of time. I mean, kids are kids. Their tension level is going to be somewhat short, but at least let them decide they've had enough and still be able to pull their bow back. If you're going out and they can't even pull their bow back after 10 shots because it's just too much weight, well, that's not going to be fun either, and that's going to promote improper form, improper alignment. It's probably going to force them to making the shot go off faster than, you know, they're probably going to want to hurry up and let go of the bow because they're tired. And that's going to promote target panic down the line. So, you know, get them set up right. Get them set up with something that they can they can control and that they're comfortable with. Um, you know, when it comes to actual form, you know, I think teaching them. Uh, I think a lot of these kids, if they were taught back tension releases or the um, or a a hinge style release or a tension activated release like a Carter mini evolution. If they were taught that from the beginning and they were fit properly to where they had good archery form, I think that would be great. Um, you know, a great bow that's on the market right now, um, that has a tremendous amount of adjustability is the Hoyt ignite. That bow has a huge draw range and also a huge range of actual pulling weight. Um, so as as you grow in draw length, you can actually grow in pulling weight on the bow as well. So that's a great you know investment to make for for any of the growing kids. Joad programs are great for getting them started. Um, if you have a really small kid, uh, Carter made a release this year called the Fair Chase, and this is like a super, super small release. That's a back tension release. It works off. You know, it's you're gonna have to teach them to shoot it, but it's it's literally a spike release. So it's a back tension release, but it has a jaw that's in a fixed position. So when they clip it on their loop, they'll have to draw it back properly. But then once they get there, they actually rotate the release until the loop slides off the end of the hook. So that promotes really good technique and it's going to prevent them from, from punching the trigger. So, you know, I do want to do a podcast that's really in depth with this. And I was planning on doing one with Rob so that we can talk through some of those fundamentals. But when it comes to just basic, where do you start? And also what's some great equipment to get them going? I think, uh, I think I've answered 
both of those questions for you and, and giving you a good direction to start with. Um, the next question that I've got here is, well, I don't have one. So I'm going to have to click refresh. We'll see how many of you guys online have came up with questions and answers since that last one I just answered. And bam, here you are. Got another eight or nine here. So uh, Zach Kemmer, he's asking uh, what causes left misses when pulling through your shot. Um, and he's asking, is it poor alignment? And it can be a number of things. I actually talked about it um, just in the last podcast. So if you didn't hear me answer that question, go back to the podcast before this and listen, because I did talk about that. It has to do with not only your alignment, could have to do with your draw length um, and your foot position as well. So, um, you know, there you go. Uh, let's see here. Um, I've got Kyle Griffins asking the question sp- about speed knocks on your string and the function of them. And then if you buy an aftermarket string, you know, what should you do? So here's the, the answer on that. You know, and I think a lot of guys started to see these years ago on the Hoyt bows. You know, a lot of the Hoyt pro staffers would have brass knocks clamped to their strings uh, about three inches from the cams or from the axle of the cam. And, uh, you know, what you'll find is when you add weight towards the end of your string, you can actually increase your speed a little bit and also decrease your string oscillation. But there is a fine line there between adding enough weight to help improve performance and then having too much weight on your string that decreases performance. So what I would do or what everyone would do then was you'd clamp brass knocks on there uh, or you'd first shoot it, shoot your bow through the chronograph without any. Then you would clamp a brass knock on the top and bottom, shoot them through the chronograph. You know, your speed is probably going to go up one foot per second or so. Uh, put another one on, you know, and you, and you keep doing that and, t- you know, and you'll see the speed go up one foot per second at a time until you get to a position to where you'll start then seeing your, your speed decrease. Once it starts to decrease, then you know, you've hit that, that red line of now you've got too much weight on the end of your string. So then remove your last brass knocks and what you're left with is pretty much, uh, the perfect combination. Um, you know, like right now with uh, Hoyt and Matthews, several of the other companies, they do have speed knocks that are on the end of their strings. Some of the manufacturers just put them on there because you can tell they have the same exact size on every bow. And uh, honestly, those are just cosmetics, and they probably haven't even experimented on what is the optimal amount. Whereas you look at, like, I know with the Hoyts, um, you know, each bow has a slightly different configuration or amount of weight on the string, and that's because they actually test with each bow what that should be. Um, you know, it, everything in the industry comes down to marketing, guys. I mean, I'm in marketing, um, so, you know, I, I have to do it at times as well, but I'm just going to tell you, you know, one foot per second is the difference between... Uh, company A's bow being the fastest this year or companies 
uh, A's bow being the second fastest. So, you know, these little speed knocks, all this stuff is the difference between them being able to have that one foot per second difference. So, uh, so they can look better than the next guy in a marketing campaign. And, um, when it comes to actual performance as a, as an archer, you're never going to notice one or two feet per second difference on your, you know, on your scales. Um, you know, maybe if you're shooting out to 70, 90 meters, you know, you're talking a couple clicks for sure. But, uh, for the most part, you know, as a bow hunter, you're not going to notice it. Um, it's nice to have them on there because like I said, it does reduce your string oscillation. It kind of, um, it kind of deadens some of that, um, residual vibration that's left in your string. Um, so, you know, what I do, if I replace my strings, which I do on all my bows, when I get literally any bow I've had for probably 20 years, the first thing I do is, um, put a set of custom strings and cables on there. Uh, right now I'm using the winner's choice with the BCYX material and, uh, I'll replace my strings and cables. And then, uh, you know, I actually, uh, put brass knocks on there. Um, I try to just look at what came on them and measure where they're positioned. And then I'll clamp brass knocks on there to be about the same. And then, um, and then what I did was at true value, you can get rubber shrink tubing. And, uh, I just, have a whole bunch of that so I'll slide that on the string after I've put my brass knocks on there and then uh, I'll carefully shrink that shrink tubing down um, around those brass knocks so everything kind of looks back to factory spec um, the best way on that shrink tubing is is a heat gun if you have one that blows hot air um, you know in a certain position if you're using um, if you're using a lighter, you know, you don't want to burn your string and you don't want to like melt the tube. So I kind of, you know, light the lighter and then hold the flame just barely above the top of that uh, shrink tubing. And once it starts to shrink down on the one side, I'll roll the string with my finger. That way I'm really not having to put the flame directly under my string. Uh, but you know, that's, I guess the benefits, um, and you know you can decide whether or not you want to mess with it um i'm shooting i think four on my carbon spider i'm shooting four i think i'm shooting three on my pro comp elite um on each end so hopefully that helps you appreciate you kyle for uh for asking the question um (laughs) this is funny okay justin peak uh, just asked me the question, how long is too long in regards to stabilizer length when hunting from a ground blind? Um, he does say, LOL, just kidding. Uh, but the reason he's saying that is because he sent me a picture of a turkey that he shot and he's got about a 24 inch stabilizer on that. So I immediately text him back and said, was your stabilizer hanging out of the window of the blind when you shot? And he said, well, it's right at the window. So, um, you know, a lot of guys are shooting a little bit longer stabilizer for their hunting bows. Um, 10 years ago, uh, when I was hunting with, um, a former engineer with, with Hoyt, um, you know, it might not have been 10 years ago, I guess, but, uh, we, 
were out and he shot a stabilizer setup that was very similar to what he shot in tournaments. He had a side rod and, you know, he just really felt like for him, um, it helped his accuracy as a hunter. Now as a whitetail hunter, you know, you're probably not going to tote around that stuff. If your bow's too heavy, you're probably your bow hanger won't even keep it, keep it up in the tree. Um, but you know, I guess if you're a Western hunter, you do a lot of spot and stock stuff. Um, you know, a lot of glassing, finding the animals, then making your stock. Then, you know, I guess shoot what works best for you. But um, I think the one that you had, Justin, was probably on the bent, the side of, um, you know, probably on the long side, I guess. So uh, Scott Truman is asking about facial contact with string and release and again this is something that i did talk about a little bit in the last podcast but it's it's super critical um facial pressure has to be minimal um some people are fortunate to where they don't have a lot of facial tissue some people have more facial tissue they really have to dig in there Um, i just really encourage you guys to take advantage of you know utilizing your d loop length so that you can fine-tune your draw length to a position uh, that allows you to not have a lot of the string on your face. Also, just don't smash your string into your face. Don't smash your nose down into your string. Don't turn your face really hard onto the side of the arrow shaft. And also, make sure your veins aren't fletched far back on the shaft to where you have contact with your veins on your face simply because of how far back you fletched those arrows on it itself. So there's a few things to keep in mind there for reducing your facial pressure, but 100%, Scott, you have to focus on that. You don't want to have facial pressure. It'll give you a lot of inconsistencies downrange. Um, Okay, uh, John Griffin is asking about short stringing. Um, I guess how to do it, what's the trade-offs, benefits. Um, You know, with different bows, uh, stringing your bow long or short is going to, um, for the most part, here's the basic things to remember. Um, And this is actually something that I covered on uh, one of the Knock on TV Dead Center segments this year. Uh, The basic rule of thumb when it comes to stringing your bow is um, if you lengthen your string, you're going to lengthen your draw length, and you're also going to increase your poundage. So obviously shortening your string would then shorten your draw length and reduce your poundage. When it comes to cables, it's going to be the exact opposite. If you shorten your cable, then you're going to increase your poundage, And you're going to also increase your draw length. So what I like to do, to be honest with you, um, you know, if if you're a person that, uh, you know, say um, say you get a bow and it's you know it's a little bit uh, you know it's a little bit off on your draw length, you want to slightly change it. I typically change my draw length if I need to increase draw length then I increase it with my cables by shortening my cables. If I need to decrease my draw length, then I decrease it with my string. Um, The reason I do it that way is because I really believe in a string needs to have twists in it. 
Um, these manufacturers are making great strings now. Um, I shoot custom strings because they make a few extra steps in making their strings. But one of the things is, you know, the string's built, it's twisted down to the factory length, and then it's served. And by doing that, you actually have your twists underneath that serving as well. So if you start to untwist your string or untwist your cable, you actually start to, um, you know, you'll start to loosen those servings. And the, and the servings are actually put on, they're wrapped in a direction to as you twist your string, uh, add twist your string or cable, you actually tighten those servings rather than loosen them. You don't want to unturn your servings because obviously that's going to start causing separation. So again, if you want to slightly increase your draw length, do it with your cables. If you want to slightly de uh, decrease your draw length, do it with the string. That way you're always adding twists. And you know, I shoot 31 and a quarter. So I always have to add a little bit of draw length uh, to my setup. Um, you know, another thing, I guess, as well, you know, one time, uh, you know, I did over, you know, I long strung a bow simply because a bow that I wanted to shoot was only available in a 30 and a half inch draw length max. So I, so I built a string that was a half inch longer and it got me to my 31 inches that I needed. Um, you know, obviously I increased the draw length. It also made the poundage a little bit heavier too, but it did work. So, um, you know, I guess if you're in the opposite direction, you need to really, you know, say you buy a bow and it's 30 inches and you can't adjust the cam and then you want to make it 29 and a half. So it fits you, you know, I guess it's something for someone that might buy a used bow or something like that. Uh, then yeah, you could short string it. Uh, it's a temporary fix. Um, you know, I don't like to go more than a half inch though, for the most part, either with short stringing or long stringing a bow. Just remember when you are, uh, adding twists or when you are twisting your strings and cables, normally add the amount of twists. Don't take twists out of a string or cable because it will loosen your servings. Um, let's see. Um, I've got Mark Herring's asking questions saying he put a new set of strings and cables on his bow and the only way to get it to shoot a bullet hole is when the knock is low, when the bow is at rest. Um, he says that he, you know, he figured out that, well, he said, I figured out that twisting up the control cable fixed it. Does this make sense? Um, it possibly could because if, you're, if your actual cam synchronization wasn't correct, then you could have, you know, been forced in a slightly different, um, you know, knock travel or a slightly different, uh, you know, curve on your bow, you know, especially if you're shooting, essentially if you're shooting a bow that's out of time, you know, a lot of times, like even, you know, I'm talking right now about a cam and a, sat, a half system, um, you know, one thing that everyone needs to realize is regardless of the system, um, you know, for a long time there's, single cambos promoted the benefits were that you know you didn't have to worry about timing um you know but in saying that a single cam has cam positioning as well it's called cam rotation and um you know even back when uh when i worked at matthews and we built our dealer books 
you know, we had to send out charts with the each of the cams and what their cam positioning should be. Because if the cam isn't in the right position, even on a single cam bow, it affects the draw length, it affects the peak poundage, and it also affects your knock travel. Um, you know, if you had a, a cam that was, say, like on a straight line cam, if you had one that was in the perfect position, it would have a flat knock travel from rest all the way to full draw. It would draw on a perfect line. But if you increased that, uh, it, it, like say you would have the cable too short where the cam would be over-rotated, then as you pulled the cam back, the knocking point would actually lift as it came back. And then obviously the opposite would be true if the cam was under-rotated. Not to mention you wouldn't get your peak weight and you wouldn't get the proper draw length. So, you know, that was on a single cam. Now on a cam and a half, it's the same thing. You know, you really want to have both of those cams, uh, you know, you at least want them having come into full draw at the same time. A lot of people prefer, and this goes for a cam and a half system or a two cam system, they like to have the top cam touch uh, that control cable slightly before the bottom. And it's very slight. It's minor. Typically what I'll do is um, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll get my bows so that both uh, cams are touching exactly at the same time. And then in order to uh, to kind of micro-tune that cam synchronization, then I use my actual yoke at the top because I can just put maybe one turn on each side of the yoke. Um, instead of having to put a full twist in the cable, I might just put one turn on each side of the yoke because then I can kind of put, essentially I'm almost putting half of a twist in there. Uh, so there's definitely a possibility that those two uh, were related uh, without a doubt. The, I guess one thing that I would just want to touch on there um, in relation to this is, you know, some bows, um, they're going to have to have a, uh, an arrow that is in a slightly po different position when it's at rest in order to shoot a bullet hole. Some bows, you know, your knock might be a little high, some's level, some even maybe a little low. Um, you know, high and low tears through paper can definitely be related to your knock travel, natu the natural knock travel engineered into the cam. It can also be related uh, directly and in most cases to the spine of your arrow. If you have a bow that continually tears low all the time, even when you move your arrow rest, then most likely uh, that's due to your arrow being too stiff. If you're tearing low, your arrow's you know too stiff. For the most part, if you're tearing high, it's going to be the opposite, too weak. Um, but, you know, clearance can have a, a direct relation to those. Um, but, you know, you can also, it can also just be related to the natural engineering build of your bow itself. And, you know, don't pay too much attention to where that needs to be in order for you to get good aeroflight. Um, and then also, I guess... Don't put a ton of weight in the fact that you always have to have a perfect bullet hole because I've had bows that shot far better than anything I've ever shot and they would not shoot a perfect bullet hole. And then I've had bows that would shoot a perfect bullet hole that would not shoot very good at all. So paper is a starting point for me and that's all it is. Um, let's see. 
I'm going to talk, we've got, let's see, I guess Dean Layton just asked a question, how to tell if your arrows are too weak or too stiff um, or if your bow isn't tuned for your right arrow. Um, You know, I did talk about that in the last podcast. I guess when we're talking about like being uh, quite a bit weak or quite a bit stiff, like I just said about paper tuning, a lot of times you can tell through paper right away. If your arrow is too weak for sure, it'll start to tear high. It's just a little bit too limber as it's coming through the bow. And then a lot of times if it's too stiff, uh, it'll tear low. Sorry about that. If you're, yeah, if you're weak, you're going to tear high. If you're stiff, you're going to tear low. Um, you know, I just really think, um, you know, I just really think that if you do that hill method that I talked about in the last podcast, uh, that really helps you fine tune your bow to match your arrows. You know, one thing that I've always believed, um, is that, you set up a bow and you tune arrows. When guys ask me about tuning my bow, uh, you know, I really don't, I don't tune my bow. I set up my bow. The, the true tuning comes in with your arrows, no doubt about it. Um, and then the last question here I've got is, uh, from a friend, Michael Fraley. He's asking about, um, you know, when you're at the shooting range, um, or when you're in league, you know, you kind of take your time, you're taking your time to aim. Um, but then when you're in a hunting situation, you know, sometimes you just really don't have that amount of time and, you know, you're, you're right about that. You know, there's, uh, both, both my wife and my boy shoot, uh, Carter evolutions, attention activated release for hunting. And, uh, you know, there's, they've definitely, uh, had opportunities that have slipped by because you know when their opportunity was there they let off their safety and they're slowly pulling 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 and then all of a sudden the animal moves they have to put on their safety and then that was their shot you know that's i guess that's the bummer part of it um the good part about about it is there's probably only one time that that's happened to each of them um and in saying that, I can tell you that probably between uh, between the two of them, you know, they've probably been successful um, at least two dozen times as hunters and with perfect shots. And so it's hard to say that it's a downside to, to trying to execute a perfect shot in a hunting situation because I would venture to say if they weren't striving for perfect shots and taking their time during the hunting time, then they probably wouldn't have been as successful as they were. Um, they've definitely had a lot of success making good shots. Whereas if they were rushing their shot, who knows, they might've had, um, some arrows that weren't perfect enough to make a clean kill. So, um, I really like to, to take my time, uh, in league, focus on aiming, uh, focus on pulling through your shot. But then when it's hunting time, you know, there's times where I know I have a window and it's right here. And I've talked about that actually when, you know, when you're in a hunting situation, knowing where your shooting lanes are and actually being prepared and at full draw and, and be waiting in that shooting opportunity when, 
that animal is passing there because you don't want to start to draw your bow once they're there because then you're going to be completely forced into rushing a shot. If you're prepared to shoot in that lane before they get there, then it's just a matter of getting on the trigger and and being aggressive with it. You know, I can pull through my shots a lot faster if I want to. When I'm aiming at a at a Vegas spot, I'm really I'm pulling very smooth, uh, smooth and very continual. Whereas when I'm aiming on a deer, I'll get it on the spot, I'll get on the trigger, and I'll really drive my elbow back and pull through the shot. I'll be a lot more aggressive on my shot. Um, I actually probably have about the same aggression on my shot in a hunting situation as I do or as I've learned as a target archer when I shoot in the wind. Um, When you shoot in the wind, you know, you really need to be able to to do your best to know where you need to hold your pin. You got to do your best to try to keep it in that position. And then you need to commit to the shot and pull through it and pull continual and not sit there and dilly dally every time your pin is slightly moving off the target. You know, you need to, to commit and be aggressive with it. Don't punch it but commit and be aggressive. And I think that same exact mentality is what I bring into the hunting world. You know, I try to get my pin on there and not really focus on aiming and cutting hairs. I focus on getting it in the in the zone and then pulling through and making a good shot. And I think in the end, you're going to have more success doing that than by worrying about aiming small and hitting small and then i guess for my last question uh for the day you know it just came through um you know this is from clyde wiggins and he's asking how did i meet my wife and this is a good story so i'm just going to say it uh sharon and i actually met on a plane to france um i was going there to shoot uh an indoor uh, an international indoor competition. We actually met on a plane, uh, didn't talk, uh, didn't talk very much. I was actually sleeping cause I had swung through England, uh, to pick up some other shooters. Uh, so I had made a slight detour. I was worn out. And, uh, but then when we got off the plane, we got shuffled, uh, next to one another in the customs line. So obviously, uh, she caught my eye and we small talked for a little while but then once we cleared customs uh she was gone and you know i kind of asked my buddies where where that cute blonde went and they said she was gone so i figured i had missed my chance uh four days later uh when i got on my plane to come back home uh we were sat in the seats next to one another so luckily that time i was able to uh to get her number and we started uh, talking and the rest is history i got a um a super cute cool english wife uh because of archery so definitely can't complain about that uh i appreciate everyone listening to uh the knock on podcast make sure you continue to spread the word have a great week shooting everybody and uh make sure you support us share If you see us posting something on Facebook about the podcast, be sure to share it. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel and uh, also to the podcast. It's free, 
So it's not going to hurt you to click a button. Appreciate it, everyone. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com.